With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What is happening, everybody? It is Friday, and for one more time, it's going to be myself and Spags doing the Sims show, looking at all the top projected lineups we're getting to in the Sims, as well as some of the individual players at each position that are showing up as the most exposed players at each spot. And all we're going to ask from you guys as you come in, just do us a favor, like the video, subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you want to sign up at stochastic.com, we do have links for that below in the description box. But what we really, really require you is just that like and subscribe. We appreciate it a whole bunch. Helps keep our content free. And uh, Spags, man of the Splash Play Pod, really want to make sure I enunciate that correct correctly this time around after my faux pas from a week ago. Uh, what's happening and how did last week go for you? Um, it was going good. I feel like the thing, and I mentioned this yesterday to Eric as well, like I think the, tar- the toughest part of, and you know, here I am being the martyr complaining about doing shows, talking <laughs> about football and all of that. But like the toughest part for me as a creator is like when you get your takes right on the show, then you put your lineups in and you get, you know, portions of things really right. Like uh, I mentioned yesterday, the Bucks Colts game last week was one where I did have the right parts of that one, but then didn't have the Josh Allen, didn't have the Kyron Williams nearly enough because I felt the projections weren't all the way there. Um, so that was sort of how my week went. And then yesterday I uh, had a lot of Sklansky Bucks for Jackson, Smith, and Jigba, uh, that touchdown that called back, that would have made me a relatively lowly duped winner of the Millie Maker Showdown and instead got to watch all of my DK Metcalf friends get there after also touting DK Metcalf on Splash Play yesterday. So feeling great, Greg. Thanks for opening up all those wounds. Yeah, uh, and I will be happy to put some salt in them as we go as well because it's, it's one of the things that I really do enjoy doing. And I, right away, we got JoJo Pookie in the chat is asking, do you have a puppet for me as well? There, There is a, an Eric puppet, but is, is there a Greg puppet anywhere? No, but there is the Eric puppet back <laughs> once again, and I know what you want to see, you naughty, naughty boy, Greg. The real Eric's in Vegas. He's busy down there with his mother-in-law for some reason. I don't know why a man would go to Vegas. His mother-in-law really confuses my delicate puppet brain, but here you go, Greg. Here's what you uh-huh, want. Oh, the best part. So what, what people what people don't realize about the Eric puppet is that it's made to the actual true dimensions. Every single inch, every single piece of that puppet is, yeah, that's exactly what Eric looks like without his pants on, a Ken doll. It's exactly the same. It's incredibly immaculately done. Whoever was the design, the puppet, I mean, just perfect. Yeah. Perfect. The thing that you missed yesterday was uh, dur- after the stream, Jordan and I were talking a little bit with Eric briefly. And then uh, Eric was like, I thought about just getting up and pulling my shorts down to show like that I do. In fact, ha- like he had boxers on. He's like, but then I didn't know if the fly would let my genitals out. And I'm like, OK, cool. That's uh, <laughs> it's a good way to handle a puppet, I think, on a stream. Yeah. And and it's also it's it's very common. Like people who are in the chat know that many, many times Eric has had to be suspended 
from the company due to indecent exposure. And it's something we run into all the time. It's like company meeting. Eric's like, oh, I didn't know my camera was on. It's like, listen, dude, I understand. It's like, fool me once, you know, shame on shame on you. But it's like 10 times. Like, how many times can we make the same mistake around here? Well, you know, you've met Eric in person, a much larger man in person. And I don't know if that applies for everything. Again, we saw the puppet, but, you know, it still would be an impressive thing to see. Yeah, Eric was actually at my house a couple of weeks ago, and that was that was my brother's first takeaway because my brother met Eric. Also, he goes, he's bigger than I thought he was going mm-hmm. to be because yeah, if you just catch some of the shows, you you would think that uh, he's he's quite a tiny, insecure human. It's just it's really not the case. <laughs> no, it was funny because like Jordan's also like I'm six one. Jordan's like I think six ish, six one, and then Eric's like fucking six three and like two fifty and built like relatively like a brick shit house, especially for a guy that played golf in college. So it is surprising when you see him mincing around the, the stochastic channel that <laughs> he is in fact a fairly large man. Yeah, get, getting bullied by me was about a half foot shorter than him, but that's that's the way it really goes. And uh, also something that I, I like in general, like I did at one point a TV show with Wally Serbiak, who's also quite a bit bigger than me. And he was a total dickhead off camera. So I was like, I'm going to bully him the entire time that we're on camera here. I think he was really caught off guard by it because he's like seven feet tall and I am very considerably shorter than him. And also we were sitting next to each other on camera. So he was towering over me, but he was really a dick to me off camera. So I didn't feel bad about it at all. He's a, he's a beautiful man. Was that for MSG back in the day when you were doing the drafting stuff? Yeah. yeah, we were doing some sort of segment where it was like, hey, former players, what would their salaries be? And and the host of the show would ask, what would Wally Zerbiak's price have been on average on DraftKings? And I was saying that like the minimum salary would have to be lowered and talking about like how how poor he would have been as a fantasy producer. And I he just he just didn't enjoy it and he just walked away after the segment was over and didn't acknowledge me. I always enjoyed him as a player. I know we, like, especially in NBA 2K, like, you really lit it up in 2K. But in real life, you know, he, he was a bucket getter. Not be mad at a bucket getter, even though now I'm mad at him for being mean to you, I guess. But you got your revenge. Yeah, and it wasn't as much as he was mean to me, as much as at the time. There's something I was doing a television pilot for MSG and the Knicks. And it was a really big opportunity for me, and he could not have been less interested or put less effort into the segment that he was on with me. And also, when he greeted me, like, didn't make eye contact, kind of like stuck his hand out, did like the cold fish uh, sort of mm. handshake, like asked him some questions beforehand about the segment and stuff, and he was just like not engaging. So like, all right, I'm just going to be mean to you as soon as we start the thing. And uh, yeah, I regret zero of it. And I think very fondly upon that memory, but neither here nor there. We have a football slate to talk about today and we're sponsored by Vivid Picks. If you guys have not checked out Vivid Picks, one of the main reasons to do it is if you sign up using the link that we have below, you get up to a $300 bonus on your first deposit, which pretty good value, right? You're just adding money to your bankroll and the standard deposit match offer at Vivid Picks is only $100. So you need to use our link to get that $300 and your first play there is a secure play up to $25. So even if your first card loses at Vivid, they're giving you back $25 in Vivid Bucks. So lots of good value when you sign up there for the first time. Just make sure you use our link when you sign up to get in the most value possible. Uh, so looking ahead to this week's bags, where we have uh, 10 games on the slate. Is is there anything about this slate, just like an overarching view that's on your mind or maybe any takeaways from last week? I think the biggest question for this week for me is the Zach Moss part of it. I've not run the Sims yet because I'm, yeah, we come into the show. We usually try to come in fairly blind to get the real reactions. And that's how Greg proofy for this. But then the same thing I do on Splash Play after this one as well. Because I like to see real live, like how it goes. But I think with Zach Moss's price tag, I imagine because there's nobody else projectable in that range. And what he's going to allow you to do in terms of the Tyreeks, in terms of the Keenan Allen, in terms of the McCaffrey's, whatever you want to get to. Keenan Allen, of course, questionable. I presume he's going to go, but we'll see with him not practicing this week. The point being, like Zach Moss opens up everything. Thing, and I'm wondering if the Sims are going to treat him 
like it has in the past. Chalk defenses, some chalk running backs. Um, Jamal Williams against Tennessee, I think, opens up some old sim wounds from the first days of these sims. But I would say in this spot, you know, Zach Moss has been a better version of Jonathan Taylor according to the advanced analytics. Um, so I'm curious to see how it all looks because if I were, if it were me, if I'm the Sims, I would say 100% Jonathan Taylor is probably not the craziest, or 100% Zach Moss is not the craziest thing to get to because of what it's going to open up. Yeah, and it, it's funny. That's what we were getting to last week when you and I did the show is I want to say we're getting to like 90% Jonathan Taylor. We're going over the back and forth of it. Jonathan Taylor had maybe the weirdest ownership I could ever remember in NFL DFS where he was projected to be very chalky pretty much everywhere, and he was in certain contests. But I, I can't remember a time where somebody's ownership was like that variant across contests where he was 18% in the Millie Maker, where he was projected to be like 35% on. So uh, way different than what we were expecting. We did the show. But then when you looked at higher stakes contests, he was nearly 50% on. So that's a really weird kind of range of ownership that I can't remember happening before, especially this year. I can't remember there being spots where we've seen players project exceptionally well from a points per dollar basis that came in that short of their ownership projection in a contest like the Millie Maker, it's usually been the inverse where somebody like a Raheem Mostert is projected really well and project for like 30% ownership. And they end up being like 50% owned in the Millie Maker. So I'm kind of curious to see what that ultimately means for Zach Moss, but I'm with you or I assume that he's just going to be massively popular and the Sims are going to recommend him a whole bunch. But did you notice what was going on with Jonathan Taylor and his ownership last week as well? Yeah, because I basically thought I was going to be with the field on him and put in 30% Jonathan Taylor and then, you know, try to get unique by putting him with Michael Pittman, with Mike Evans, which it was like, oh, I felt like a genius. And then, of course, the games didn't really matter. The scores didn't matter because Kyron Williams came over the top. But I was how that was what my approach basically was like, OK, I'll take the field's ownership and try to get different somewhere else, which I think is one of the valid ways to tackle ownership. We talk a lot about I know uh, Josh and Adam debate a lot about the idea of these lower owned lineups and how you're getting there. You can still have chalk in them. It's just a matter of the overall configuration of things. Um, so I was surprised to see those results but then i think what we're seeing then is like okay 18 percent played him in the millie maker we're then saying about 12 percent less than what would you expect him to play i think that's 12 percent is people that go you can't play a running back against tampa bay that's not how that's going to go so that's probably the casual component is like math assumes that people play logically based on the projections and then at a certain point you know especially in the millie maker people do make their own choices especially all the hand builders out there and they're just going yeah i can't play this guy in this matchup because he's going to get shut down and he had a perfectly good game it just ended up mattering relative to the overall ecosystem and one thing that was really funny about the Jonathan Taylor game is the reason the projections and the simulations really liked him was the total inverse of the reason he actually ended up being good. He scored two touchdowns and he was also pretty efficient last week, but Zach Moss came out and no, like Zach Moss was almost out of the running back rotation, hardly playing the game before this only one carry for Zach Moss. And all of a sudden it was a split backfield last week. Now we come to find out that Jonathan Taylor had a thumb injury and that's why he's going to be out. I assume for the rest of the season, so that might have been part of the reason why that they were trying to limit him. Maybe he went to the coach and said, I was like, hey, got injured early in the game. I'm banged up. So maybe that was the reason. But it uh, looks like Zach Moss is going to be back in the mix in a very big way for the Colts. And uh, Jacob, if you wouldn't mind throwing the Sims up on screen, I want to look to see what our number one overall projected lineup is and whether it has Zach Moss. And the answer is yes. And to go further, all of the top lineups I'm looking at on screen have Zach Moss in them, it appears. So He's somebody we're going to be getting to a whole bunch this weekend. If we look at our number one overall projected lineup here, Spags, it is actually a 49ers double stack. So we've got Brock Purdy at quarterback. The pass catching options are Brandon Ayuk and then uh, well, Rashad White. So not actually a wide receiver or a tight end, but still a running back that is pretty involved in the passing game with Zach Moss in there as well. And the other pass catchers rounding it out. We've got Josh Downs. Jerry Judy, Logan Thomas at tight end. We've got Christian McCaffrey's a pay-up option. 
Falcons defense, I never concern myself too much with the defenses I get to. Yeah. It's a dumb position. I wish we were done with it, but it's here. Whatever the Sims give me, I do zero manipulation to the defenses at all. Whatever it is is what it ends up being. Uh, but what do you make of a Purdy-San Francisco double stack being our number one overall best projected ROI lineup? I get the logic. I'm curious to see. I haven't done my research yet into the alternate markets for that game, but what the alternate markets look like for Philadelphia, San Francisco, where if you do see a few alternate lines that have a high probability of going under, let's say, you know, higher than the market total, that tends to be a sign of the markets hedging against a shootout. Um, so that's something that I tend to play a lot, actually, is how I kind of get to a lot of the games that do hopefully have some shootout potential. Um, I get it with Brock Purdy. I get the price point. I get the double stack part of it. Um, the Rashad White part, you know, against Carolina, I think has been a match that people want to target a lot. So I certainly could see that. Uh, Josh Downs leverage against a chalkier Michael Pittman. So I think that makes some amount of sense. Uh, the Judy part, I'm not quite as sure about. I don't know where that's coming from, but the lineup makes sense. I just, I'm, I don't know if I'm as bullish. I feel like we get a lot of Niners double stacks with the Sims because they are inherently kind of a good stack every single week, every single matchup. Um, but I'm not like excited about Brock Purdy this week. I think he's one of the plays, but I don't know. He's like the play I'm dying to get to. Yeah, and I realized I think I just misspoke there. I meant to say Christian McCaffrey is part of the stack as a running back with San Francisco, and I think I, I threw out uh, Rashad White, but who knows? Say a lot of things. I, I have to rewind to see what it is I actually said there, but either way, it's Christian McCaffrey as part of the stacking option there with Brock Purdy, and I don't mind him in stacks with Purdy either, Christian McCaffrey, where somebody who we've seen just obviously massive touchdown equity, very involved in the run game as well as the pass game. It wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world if Christian McCaffrey was to catch a touchdown pass. So a couple of running backs that are going to be popular this week that I don't mind getting them with their quarterbacks at all. McCaffrey is one of them. Zach Moss is another one because just like we talked about with Jonathan Taylor last week, you could definitely make a case for Zach Moss being somebody who's enough of a pass catching back that you can combine him with Gardner Minshew. And then not all that long ago, Zach Moss kind of only was a third down running back in some of his previous spots. And that was his role on other teams. So Rashad White, uh, Zach Moss, Christian McCaffrey, all guys we're getting to in our top projected lineup are also guys who I'm fine with being stacking partners with their quarterbacks for this week. Something else I'm noticing here, a lot of Miami triple stacks. The Miami mm -hmm. Dolphins this week are going up against the just absolutely hapless commander's defense who were terrible in the first half of the year. And then they trade away Chase Young and Montez Sweat at the trade deadline, which on paper should only make their defense worse. This is a team that hasn't had the most difficult matchups in recent weeks. Last week, notwithstanding, they played against the Cowboys. They gave up 45 points. If there's any team that you could just onslaught stack with zero concerns about a run back with potential for them completely breaking the slate, would you agree that it's the Miami Dolphins against the commanders? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing that jumped out to me was recently on social media, and I wish I could give credit, but I just, you, you know how it is. I see too many things on social media, and it's like, I can't remember where the fuck this came from. Uh, but there was somebody that pointed out that the commanders, in terms of the year, giving up seven more points in their implied total on average per game. And we already have an implied total for this one, which was, I think, just shy of 30. I don't know if that's crested past it yet. It's still 29.5, and I feel like by the time it gets to Sunday... We're not shocked to see Miami be implied for over 30 points. And then you add on that potential seven average points that are going above that. You have a lot of ways for them to get there. That said, you know, running backs, we do know a key part of Miami's offense. I think that is something to keep in mind. Uh, but I think that, you know, the Tyreek part of it, I was kind of thinking through it earlier in the week when I did the show with Ben Rasa. Um, and it's one of those things where like Cooper Cup a couple years ago, like it made sense when he was 10K because he had the floor 10 to 15 targets a game is getting you 100 to 150 yards, maybe a touchdown, but usually a touchdown. For Tyreek, it's just like, 
he might go for 250 yards in this game. And yeah, maybe he goes for 80 and a touchdown and has like an okay day, but he could break the slate. So you kind of have to pay his price tag and put him in stacks to get unique on it. Um, and I think for Tyreek, like he could have the biggest day of the year. And this could be where he like gets to 2000 yards because that's how bad the commanders are. And then also something else that uh, people have been asking about, like how, how many receiving yards do I think Tyreek Hill is going to finish the season with? And this is a little bit more narrative based than stuff we kind of usually talk about around here, but knowing Mike McDaniels and the way that he kind of approaches some of these games, to me, he seems like the kind of guy that would prioritize trying to get Tyreek Hill different kind of receiving records. It's something that would give, you know, extra credence to his offense and how he's running stuff a little bit differently. It would also be like a nice pat on the back for Tyree kill in the massive season. He's had, it would make him a little bit more likely to win the offensive player of the year. Do you think it's reasonable to think that is something the dolphins are looking at, especially in a very winnable game against the commanders is like, Hey, we might be able to get Tyree kill a little bit more targets in this spot, an easy matchup to boost up his odds of being somebody who look at as like, Hey, this is the best receiving year anybody's ever had. I don't think that's a crazy thing to think for sure. I mean, the thing that they're running into a little bit, which I think we kind of saw last week against the Jets, is that they also have to get Jalen Waddle a bit more involved just to be ready for the playoffs where you want to have both these guys kind of going at full capacity. But I would agree that, you know, like to me, I think Tyreek should be an MVP candidate. I know Dak is getting a lot more, and Dak is kind of running into the thing where he's probably not going to even win his division. Um, they have to beat Philly coming up, but if they don't beat Philly, it's like they have no shot to get enough of a record to get there. But I think Dak is a good MVP case, but I also think you couldn't have the Miami Dolphins without Tyreek Hill. Like I know they're doing some similar things in Houston with Tank Dell, uh, but if I were Miami, and again, I, it's hard to say, like if I'm Miami, yes, I'm no Mike McDaniels, but um, I would say that in general, like I think you feed Tyreek here. I think you give him the upside because there's a chance you might not have to play your starters come week 18, if not week 17. That depends on the Bills run. Uh, but I think for them, like, yeah, get the big game out of the way, get the highlight, the Heisman campaign kind of game out of the way uh, for Tyreek now and give him 200 yards here. And I think that's definitely in the range of outcomes. And it honestly could happen naturally. Like, they don't have to go to the way to feed him because this is the best pure matchup he'll face all year. Yeah. And I mean, it's the best matchup really anybody ever faces because the commanders, it, it kind of hasn't even mattered who it is they've played against that quarterback. They're almost always giving up just massive games to the opponent. Now they're going up against the team that scores the most fantasy points of any offense in the league. Like even the commanders weren't able to hold down like Tommy DeVito when they played against the Giants. So this is a defense that has been no stranger to giving up fantasy points. And uh, real quick, Jacob, if you could pull the Sims back up on the screen, I want to see what some of the other highly uh, projected lineups had as far as stacks. We actually do have a Titan stack here that's projecting really well. Will Levis plus three. That's That's for the adventurers. That is for sure. And actually, could you do me a favor, Jacob? Go to the stack types and filter out the plus threes. Let's see what some of the best lineups are that are just the single and double stacks. Yes, just go does not contain. And you can just type three in and that will do it. Yeah. All right. So if we go ahead and look at these and actually unfavorite all of these lineups and then just favorite the top 150 that are not triple stacks. And we'll see what kind of results we're getting from that. And we take some of those out of the mix and we actually do get a lot more variance and variability here in our top lineups bags where it's still the 49ers double stack. That was our best one before. So that remains the same, but then it's Steelers, New Orleans, another 49ers, Steelers, Denver, Steelers, Miami Rams. This is like a pretty wide array of lineups that you're looking at when we do take out some of those triple stacks is this a week where, and maybe the answer might be you don't know yet, or you, you'll need more information, stuff along those lines, but how inclined are you to take some of the triple stacks out of your lineups? 
It's tough because I do think the triple sacks kind of gain in merit as the season goes on. We have a better read on the guys that actually can either directly pull from a chalk play or contribute to what makes for a good day for the QB. So I'm a little bit more willing to play the triple sacks these days, but it does feel like for a Millie maker kind of tournament where you do have to hit the pure nuts. Um, and also people are, you know, hitting the nuts recently without with unstacked lineups, which I don't think is the right way to do that. You know, getting a QB plus one and a QB plus two allows you to get more flexibility to get those players that are ceiling plays that aren't directly correlated. But I still want to try to get more correlation than not, especially if you're going to a low round game. Where like for Pittsburgh, like I don't imagine people will triple stack Pittsburgh. I don't imagine obviously we'll get the one double here. Um, but I think that's, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a fluidity thing with some of that stuff where um, like Houston triples make sense, you know, especially if you have like a tank Dell chalk week. Um, you know, I think that's sort of the way that I like to attack slates, but um, definitely I like the smattering of different teams though. Like I, I probably would not want to actually play a Pittsburgh triple, but a Pittsburgh double feels a little bit safer. Yeah. And then something else too, to consider about the Steelers, different offensive coordinator, Matt Canada isn't there anymore. And whether it's a coincidence or not, they did have their best game of the season on offense last week and arguably the best game of Kenny Pickett's career last week in the first game without the offensive coordinator. Do you think that's a coincidence or do you think there's something to it that made the Steelers actually play better? I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of a dead cat bounce where it's like, okay, Matt Canada kind of hit the floors of what he could do. And now it's just having anybody else in there. That is a new voice. It's going to maybe give a little bit, uh, loosen the governor on Kenny Pickett and allow him to actually be the player closer to the player that he was in college. He was getting it downfield. I think is a positive sign. Um, you know, that said, like it was just a lot of tight end checkdowns. We didn't see Pickens get loose. We didn't see Deontay Johnson do anything besides watch guys fumble and not help out. So I don't feel like it's a drastic overhaul for the offense, but I think against Arizona, like everybody's got hope. I kind of feel like I worry if I play too many Pittsburgh stacks, you just run into Najee Harris putting up a touchdown, Jalen Warren putting up a touchdown, and that's the day. Uh, but there's hope for the first time, I think, in a while, and I think it's better to play into the potential of a positive outcome than ignore it and just go like, I'm just going to go back to the same thing they were uh, before Matt Canada got fired. Yeah, and one thing we're seeing in the in the lineups, and somebody brought it up in chat, this is Cohiba in the YouTube chat brought up zero Stroud lineups. Wow. And yeah, that is true of our top lineups, not, not getting to CJ Stroud. There have been previous weeks where he showed up a whole bunch. He's gotten to be really expensive now. And actually, if you go to our, uh, there's one CJ Stroud lineup, but if you go to the exposures, uh, let's Jacob look at our QB exposures and uh, Zach Moss actually literally in hundred percent of lineups. First time I've seen that the entire year where players actually showed up in hundred percent of lineups there in Zach Moss, but go to the positions, Jacob, and then go to QB. I want to see our QB exposures here and starting with CJ Stroud, who is in 3.3% of lineup. So that actually is a little bit higher than it appeared to be just by looking at our top lineups, but 3.3% of CJ Stroud, he's projected for 6% ownership. He's gotten to be expensive. Tank Dell has gotten to be pretty expensive. How are you going to approach the Houston Texans who are not a team that at least relative to their price tags are projecting well for us to like be jamming them really in the Sims. So I love Houston and this has been something that has been a pain point where the chat pushes back every time that I do a strategy show. I mentioned the Broncos defense isn't good and it's been a thing that's now gone on for about five weeks where they keep getting these outside results. I keep attacking them no matter what slate it is, whether it be the showdown, whether it be the main slates, I keep going after them. It's just that Jordan Love game. It's been like they get these kind of very, you know, these lucky results. Jordan Love looked awful in that game, but still some turnovers in that game that were not really on him. A couple of bounce passes every week, they get bounce pass turnovers and it's like, 
turnovers inherently are lucky. Like Deron Bland, I think, proved that last night where everybody's going, defensive player in the year. He's the best corner in football. What happens? He goes up against DK Metcalf, gets annihilated because he's run hot on takeovers or takeaways rather and gotten some touchdowns on them. Uh, for the Broncos, I think it's the same thing. They're still a you know, plus EPA team in every facet in terms of the run game, in terms of the pass game. And CJ Stroud's the kind of player. They're also at Houston. They're not in Denver, so they're not getting the boost for being a mile high. I think that's something with them where I think they are due to get blown up. I think that CJ Stroud is a guy to do that. Of course, it won't shock me again if the pass bounces off a of Tank Dell's hands. They land another lucky pick, and then people come back and go, the Broncos D is good. They are one of the worst defenses that keeps luck boxing every week. So I want to attack them here. And I like, I'll be heavy on Stroud and Houston just because, especially if the projections aren't pushing you there. Like, I think it's a huge upside matchup. And Denver's also competitive enough on offense to keep it close. Yeah. And if you go ahead and look at some of the other exposure that we have here at quarterback, once we're getting past uh, CJ Stroud, by the way, if anybody has questions or comments and you're watching in the YouTube chat, just throw stuff in like Ahiba did. And I'll definitely read it off on the on the show and then we'll look into you know some of the data and maybe why it is that certain players like cj stroud aren't showing up quite as frequently but we are getting to here can you sort by the or is it sorted by the exposures already where did where's kenny pickett oh we're not okay there it is we're not scrolled up all the way that's what it was i was looking for kenny pickett and uh he wasn't there we weren't scrolled up all the way but yeah, get into a ton of Kenny Pickett here. 21% alliance with Kenny Pickett, 18.7% of Russell Wilson. We got 16% of Derek Carr, 13% of Tua. So these are the four quarterbacks we have double-digit exposure to, all of which were also overweight to the field. There's no real chalk at QB. We've got Tua is projected for 10.9% ownership, but that's not like crazy chalk or anything like that. So the QB position is pretty spread out. Outside of guys like Jalen Hurts, Tua, and then also CJ Stroud. Like we don't really have many of the stud QBs that are playing on the main slate this week, which uh, kind of brings up some uncomfortable stacks you're going to have to get to, like Kenny Pickett showing up in as many lineups as we're getting to. So here's my question for you, Spags. Of these quarterbacks that are not great that we're getting a lot of exposure to, Kenny Pickett, Russell Wilson, Derek Carr, who is your favorite amongst those options? And who's the one that uh, maybe makes you gag a little bit? So Derek Carr, I kind of don't get. I mean, I guess you're, if you're sacking him with A.T. Perry, and uh, Olave's going to play, right? Like, it seems like he is with concussion protocol where he's already back in practice. But that's been so weird this year where I'm not yeah. sure how to read that one. So I remember earlier in the year, it was something like the first four, five games of the season. Nobody who got a concussion was able to return the next week. Right. And then the first player that broke the trend, it was a tight end. but it Was, was it also Musgrave? It might have been Musgrave, but it was also like a player who played on Thursday Night Football and the next game was on a Monday or something like that. So it was like there was like extra time off. But now we have started to see players come back a little bit quicker from the concussions than they were earlier in the year. So maybe it has been like a little bit of a change in leniency by the NFL, because I agree with you. It does seem like somebody like Chris Olave is more likely to play now than he was, you know, maybe earlier in the week. He's already returned to practice. That's generally a positive sign, especially because he did it you know, already like on Thursday. So it's way ahead of the weekend's games here. Uh, but one thing that I have liked about getting Derek Carr stacks is that this is a team that just throws a ton. Even in some of the games where Alvin Kamara has big games, it'll be because he gets targeted like 12, 13 times. And you see games where Derek Carr has actually been at the top of GPPs when the Saints score like 13 real life points just because he throws the ball like 50 times and has 350 passing yards. And his wide receivers other than Chris Olave, are not all that expensive. So I actually have liked making some like the double and triple stacks of Derek Hart just based on volume. 
Yeah, I would agree that it's kind of interesting as well. Like, I think you're running into something with Derek Carr where same situation as Seattle, where Seattle came out really aggressive yesterday, obviously opened up the long touchdown uh, to DK Metcalf, but they know going against Dallas, it's like you can't really come out and just run the ball three times and punt and like kind of play it half-assedly. I think it's the same thing for New Orleans at home against De uh, against Detroit, where Detroit, you know, even though they've been bad the last few weeks, and that might be a sign of bad things to come, they are still an offense that could put up 28, 35, 40 points against you pretty easily. And I would say for them, you know, if you're New Orleans, like you want to see Derek Carr coming out aggressively. And for New Orleans as well, you know, Rashid Shahid likely not playing. Michael Thomas definitely out. You are likely to see some consolidation of targets. You do run into the Taysom Hill part of it, where Taysom Hill could take uh, red zone passes away, could take red zone rushes away and all of that. But I think Carr makes sense if you do get Olave in. Uh, I think Olave, you know, A.T. Perry, uh, Kamara, uh, maybe Juwan Johnson. Uh, it's kind of a live stack that's going to get a little more consolidation than it's had all year. Yeah, over 300 passing yards in four of the last six games for Derek Carr. Last week, 38 pass attempts against the Falcons, 304 yards. Game against the Colts, 310 yards on 27 pass attempts. And these are the games that I really like to reference when it comes to the potential upside of Derek Carr. Against the Jaguars, 55 pass attempts. 301 yards in the game before that against the Texans. They scored 13 real-life points, and Derek Carr threw the ball 50 times at 353 passing yards. Like, a bunch of players from the team got there, even though the offense sucked because all they did was throw the football the entire game against the Houston Texans. And if you go ahead and look at some of the other players here, if you're spending up a quarterback this week, and I know that some people are saying they're, like, uh, not really comfortable with the fact that we're only getting to 3% of C.J. Stroud, but for me, if I am going to pay up for one quarterback, and I know a lot of people watching only play one, two, three lineups. If I'm paying up for one quarterback in that lineup, it's going to be Tua for me. You got Jalen Hurts, who's definitely a serviceable option, and obviously there's upside in C.J. Straub. But to me, the guy has to be Tua going up against that commander's defense. You and I talked about it at the top, but all things being considered, Spags, the ownership, the potential upside, if you're paying up for one quarterback, are you going to your guy, CJ Stroud, against the Denver Broncos? Are you going to Tua? Which which would be the payup option for you? I think Tua is a very strong play. Just the lack of rushing upside is tough. Like, CJ Stroud isn't a world beater as a rusher either, but he is like a Joe Burrow-level rusher where he's carving out you know, the occasional 8-10 to 10 yard rushes when it's there for him. Um, so I think that's something at least that he has, where Tua is running two times a game for like a negative 1.5 EPA per rush. So actively taking any sort of points off the table if he is running the ball. Um, so that's something for Tua where I think it's a little bit harder to hit your full ceiling if you just don't run at all. Uh, but that said, like, you know, I think Tua, that's where the QB plus three thing is more appealing to me, where if Tua gets there, it's probably because he had an outlier day for Tyreek. He also maybe created an outlier day for Jalen Waddle, And then maybe one of the running backs also punches in two touchdowns and catches a few passes from him. Or I guess Durham Smythe could maybe get their minimum salary. But I think for CJ Stroud, it's a little bit cleaner cut. So I would personally favor CJ Stroud, but I think for Tua, like I'm going to have a lot of both. I think it's the best way to say it, but I think Tua, the rushing upside a little bit tougher to pay the price tag, and Stroud is you know slightly cheaper. And then one other thing that I've noticed about my QB exposures this year, or no, I shouldn't say this year, the last few weeks, you we're getting a bunch of shitty quarterbacks on slates to where it's just easier to condense your QB exposures because some of these guys are like so many chats asking us if we want to play Joe Flacco this week. No, I don't want to play Joe Flacco this week. But then you go ahead and you look at the bottom of of our exposures here. It's like all right, we got to one lineup that had Dorian Thompson Robinson in it. But, like, I'm not overly enthusiastic about playing him. I feel like each week we go into now, with the amount of injuries, like half the starting QBs are out in the league, I'm kind of writing off about half the teams as potential stacks anyway when we go into it. And that's why I'm having a lot more slates this year where I, I'm kind of building my lineups around, like, four, five, six stacks as opposed to previous years where I might not have more than 10% of any quarterback and I'd be really spread out. Is that something that you've noticed about your lineups as well? 
I do sprinkle in the occasional DTRs and uh, Tommy DeVito's even actually had uh, when Tommy DeVito was still actively bad. I had played him one week and actually had one of my better lineups because it allowed me to get to some of the, the stud players that had outlier weeks. Um, I, I think I agree with your approach overall. It's like it is consolidating some of these guys. Like last week, I played a good amount of Baker Mayfield, a good amount of Gardner Minshew, who I would say are a little bit above the DTRs of the world, the Tommy DeVitos of the world and all of that. Um, but I'm a little more willing, I think, to go to some of those guys, like just, you know, specs here and there, because there is a world where Flacco, the last time he played, was throwing a lot of deep balls, also does target, you know, different guys as well that you can get to Njoku, you can get to the running backs for Cleveland if he does end up starting. Uh, but I think also Amari Cooper comes a little bit more in play because you're going to see Flacco throw up a few uh, deep shots for him that will be probably reckless, but will still have some opportunity. So you can play some of those guys, but I think it is still the same thing we always do where, you know, how certain are you in the probability of them hitting? Um, that's usually a reflection relative to your ownership where you want to get more to, you want to get more Stroud, you want to get more Purdy even or, or Kenny Pickett uh, relative to this slate. But I think mixing in a few low owned guys that maybe have some shot to get there. Like I think DTR could have gotten there last week. He just got you know, concussed or whatever. Anything else you want to bring up at quarterback? If not, we'll start looking at the running backs and uh, we'll discuss this crazy Zach Moss jock. No, I mean, I personally, I would say the one thing I'd bring up is that Kenny Pickett, I just don't believe will get the ownership that he probably should get uh, just because people don't want to play him. He hasn't had the multi-touchdown upside you know, at all, really, in his career. But I think for him, if the Sims are telling you to play a guy and people just don't naturally want to play that guy, I think that's when you can get there a little bit more. And I just think people will play Fearmouth or they'll play one of the running backs and they won't play Pickett. So I think he's actually a pretty good play um, because just the field won't want to go there. And I feel like I should have maybe noticed that a little bit last week too, where every time I talked about Jonathan Taylor, whether it was on this show, when I was doing my Sims VODs, where like the short form videos where I was showing how much ownership I was getting to Jonathan Taylor, all the feedback was Jonathan Taylor is not playable because he's going up against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense. And I should have just realized, all right, large field tournaments, people just don't want to play Jonathan Taylor. And then his ownership ended up being about half what it was projected to be. And so, yeah, maybe Kenny Pickett ends up being that guy this week because that's also right away I see in the chat. And I understand why people are are saying that too, where they're just like, I, I can't play Kenny Pickett. He's bad. He's got small hands. I'm seeing all the comments in the YouTube chat. And I, I do think he's somebody who probably comes in lesser owned than what he's projected for. But let's go ahead and check out running backs. And I have to think after we saw Jonathan Taylor score two touchdowns last week, and maybe people didn't play Jonathan Taylor when they were considering it. Now Jonathan Taylor's out. Zach Moss is cheap. He's projected to be chalk. We've got him projected here for 48% ownership spags. And in our top 150 projected lineups by simulated ROI, he is showing up in all 150 of them, which is the first time I've seen that show up the entire year. What do you make of that? I So it's one thing that stuck out to me with the Raheem Mostert slate about a month ago now where they played Carolina and Raheem Mostert ended up being 50% owned when most of the industry was projecting him around 30 to 35%. And then it ended up being too to actually win that slate because Mostert did hit. The people who did have top finishes in the Millie Maker in particular had played like 98% Raheem Mostert. So I do think that's what you should be doing if a player is going to be chalk. It's really obvious chalk. You think you get steamed up. I do wonder, though, if like this is going to be the same thing we saw with Jonathan Taylor, where maybe the field a little bit, at least the casuals, come in and go, uh, Tennessee, like I've been here before, and they've shut down chalk running backs multiple times. So maybe that keeps the Moss ownership in check and does make it so you don't have to get to 100, or it makes your 100% more valuable if you get there. But I think with this price point, there's nobody projected around him. Uh, for game theory, for a tournament, like you can fade any player, especially you know a running back that's going to have such concentrated ownership. But, you know, like he's a strong play. I like I get why the Sims will push you there. And I think it's going to be a personal choice thing of how much you want to get. The other thing, too, is that we've seen both DraftKings and FanDuel have been really aggressive at pricing backups this year. I don't know what happened. They, they tremendously dropped the ball this week because 
this when we've seen the backups get priced up, it's been when guys are questionable or even when guys aren't on the injury report. They just price up backups just in case. Zach Moss is $4,600 on DraftKings, $5,600 on FanDuel. And we've known for a while that Jonathan Taylor wasn't going to be playing. We knew before the pricing came out. So it's just a big pricing mishap. If you're just looking at projections off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure Zach Moss is the best points per dollar player we've had of the entire season. And it's because of a change in the pricing algorithm by FanDuel and DraftKings that for whatever reason just didn't pick up the situation this week. So 100% Zach Moss. I understand that's pretty aggressive, but I'm actually pretty okay with that being a stand to take on this slate. Yeah, I think same thing. It's like I would play zero or I'd play 100. I think is how I would view it for most tournament kind of approaches. And uh, playing 100 is going to be the sim approach because it allows you to get different configurations. If that guy hits his median outcome, let alone exceeds it, then the other guys who are going to explode around him could help you get there. But, you know, again, if you get uh, like Steelers running backs or I think mid fives, like you could get there and if they could beat Zach Moss straight up, you're getting a similar configuration but getting off the beaten path. So there are ways to tackle it, whether you go either way. But I think it's going to be a lot cozier to just play 100% and not worry about it. We've got Ryan Rennenbaum in chat is uh, saying he wants Puppet Lindquist to do the exotic play of the week. I assume you're not familiar with this, but have you caught wind of what this is? I heard Eric mention it on the stream yesterday, but I don't know what it actually encapsulated. All right. So one of the first live before lock shows we did this year, somebody left us a super chat and asked, who is your favorite exotic play of the night? And I, I, I didn't really know what that was supposed to mean. Because it's like, like, is that a contrarian play? Is that just somebody who's like, completely, like what, what does exotic mean? So I was just kind of thinking of it as a, as a contrarian play. And Eric's answer for that slate was Peyton Pritchard. And I'm going, Peyton, that's, that's not an exotic human being, Peyton Pritchard. And so then he gave out a second answer, who I can't remember who it was, but it was another white guy. And this was totally unintentional by Eric. So now every show we've had since then, people want the exotic play. of the night. We try to push white basketball players on Eric Lindquist to make his decision on. So uh, that is something here where Brian Renbaum now wants uh, Puppet Linquist to do an exotic NFL play of the week. But can, can we even can we even find like who? I mean, if Rashad White, there is kind of like a tangential uh, connection to the exotic play of the week. If not, it probably has to be our favorite. It probably has to be our favorite tight end of the week is the exotic play of the week. I would say the exotic play of the week is going to be Kenny Pickett because there's nothing more exotic than going to Pittsburgh. You get steaks served on stone there. This is a fact, by the way. I've been to Pittsburgh before. They also fucking love ketchup. What's more exotic than ketchup? Ketchup, Peyton Pritchard, it all goes hand in hand. That's exotic for me, baby. Oh, oh there it is again. There it is again. <laughs> All of all of Eric's favorite things, showing off his smooth bottom and picking on a uh, some white players that he likes for DFS purposes. <laughs> all of, all of Eric's stuff wrapped into one there. And if if we go ahead and look at some of the other players who are exotic that are showing up at our ownerships, they sure as hell aren't at the running back position outside of Christian McCaffrey. McCaffrey, we're only getting to, and this will happen when you have one hundred percent of one running back. There's only so much room for other running backs to make it in. So. Rashad White, getting to a bunch of him. Christian McCaffrey, getting to a whole bunch of him as well. But these are the kind of chalky guys at the position. And that is also who we're building on, which will happen from time to time. A lot of times people will say like chalk, they'll, they'll kind of just consider it to be bad in tournaments. But there's good chalk and there's bad chalk. And a lot of times there are players who are expected to be really popular. The Sims will say, all right, this guy's 20% owned, but he should be 50% owned or something like that. And you get to more of them. Everybody knows that I think Zach Moss, Rashad White, Christian McCaffrey, viable running backs to be getting to. 
Are there any lower owned running backs that you see we're either getting to here, Spags, or ones that maybe you'd want to do an ROI boost to force into more lineups? I am intrigued a little bit as the week has gone on. I've been thinking about Brees Hall a little bit more because it should be a competitive game against um, Atlanta in that spot. You know, Atlanta, not a, a soft run defense by any stretch, but I think it's a game where the defense keeps it competitive enough for the Jets that Brees Hall could actually see like a full workload in that game. And it's tough because, again, it's the Jets. Like the QB situation is a disaster. And until Aaron Rodgers gets back in, I'm sure with all of his miracle treatments that are going on, he's going to be right back out there. Talk about an exotic play. That guy's got some exotic things flowing through his blood right now. Um, but I would say besides that, like I think Brees Hall is the most interesting to me perhaps. Uh, but Najee Harris and Jalen Warren, I think if you are going to go away from Zach Moss, Again, both guys priced, I think, 5,200 and 5,400. So there are potential there to get there. You know, if the Pittsburgh stack doesn't hit, and if that is actually a little bit chalkier, then we think the field is going to let it be. I think that's something, too, we're getting leverage potentially on the Kenny Pickett stack. So um, I also think there's a world where Harris and Warren can both get there. I don't know that I want to play that outcome a lot, but I think it's possible they can both get one touchdown and then Najee breaks a few more runs. Maybe Najee gets two touchdowns. Warren gets a few more PPR points. But I think there's something there to that where they're the only guys who are even close in price points to Zach Moss um, that kind of offer the same upside. So um, they're more intriguing than they should be, I, I guess, and especially given how the Pittsburgh situation has gone every single week of the year besides last week. Yeah, and also, I mean, like, we keep hearing from the Steelers, and apparently it doesn't matter who the offensive coordinators or what's going on, but for weeks now we hear, hey, Jalen Warren's going to be the starter. Jalen Warren's going to be getting more workload, and, and it never ends up happening. We hear it every single week, and you can't fool me again. Although by the time I stop getting fooled by it, it's just going to actually end up being true, and they're going to do it. But, I mean, if we look at Jalen Warren and Najee Harris, it's been a split workload no matter how many times they say Jalen Warren is going to be the guy this week. And if you do look at our projections here, you know, we're getting to some of each of them, but a little bit underweight to field on Najee Harris, so the more weight, more or less even with the field. And then Jalen Warren project for 8% ownership. He only showed up in two of our top 150 lineups here. If I'm thinking about the players we're getting to and how they correlate with some of the other options that we like here, Spags, this is where I think Derrick Henry makes a good amount of sense. Projected for 10% ownership here in the contest generator. And if we're going to be playing a whole bunch of Zach Moss, Right. Who are the players we could reasonably correlate him with on the other side of the game? Now, you and I were talking last week that do you need runbacks? No, not necessarily, but there are certain spots where it can make sense. And I think this is one of those spots with Derrick Henry because he's somebody this year that at times people say like, oh, this is Tajay Spears' backfield. Maybe it isn't Derrick Henry's. But that's really only game script dependent. Like if the Titans are down by a bunch, Derrick Henry isn't on the field. Tajay Spears is the, cash, is the patch casting back. And then in addition to that, we just don't see much of Derrick Henry at this point in his career in one-sided games. If this is going to be a competitive game where maybe the Titans are even leading, it's going to be Derrick Henry mainly on the field. And Zach Moss is game script proof. He's going to be on the field whether they're trailing or whether they're leading. So I do like lineups that have Derrick Henry and Zach Moss both in them from a correlation standpoint. Yeah, normally you wouldn't want to go, I think, two running backs in the same game just because of how that works and the ebb flow of it all where you know, one team is pushing the lead or the advantage with their running back. The other team is perhaps coming and playing from behind. But because Zach Moss is so cheap and because, as Greg mentioned, he does have that third down role. Like last week, he was playing a lot of high leverage situations. And I think this is before uh, Taylor actually hurt his thumb, but it was playing some high leverage situations, playing some third and longs as well. Um, so the role is there for him to be there no matter what the game script is. So I agree that this week relative to Zach Moss's price and also what the opportunity is. He's kind of matchup uh, matchup proof. I don't want to say that fully, but um, I think normally you could throw out, you know, like two running back lines from the same game. But I think in this one, especially for a main slate, but in this one, I think I agree. Like you can go there a little bit more, um, even though I'd probably prefer like a Hopkins build with Moss a little bit more. But I, I think you're right that you could do Henry too, and it's probably the same thing. 
Yeah, and then uh, nothing else really showing up too much in the lineup. So we got Jameer Gibbs about even with the field. Ramondre Stevenson has played more of that pass catcher role in recent weeks for the Patriots than at the start of the year. I think a big reason I have to do with that is, is that the quarterback situation has been so bad for the Patriots. Like you were just talking about how bad it's been for the Jets. I mean, it's probably been even worse for the Patriots this year, especially because they had probably some level of confidence that Mac Jones was going to be their guy of the future coming into the year. And it's just been a total disaster. He's regressed in just a crazy way this year. Last week, they went to Bailey Zappi in the second half, and it seemed like that was a design plan where before the game started, we had heard news that, hey, we're not sure who the starting quarterback's going to be. Then it was Zappi and Mac Jones are both going to end up getting snaps. And so it was one guy played the first half, one guy played the second half. And then that kind of scenario, I think it's probably just simplest for the quarterback. Just be like, hey, I'm just going to dump the ball to Ramondre Stevenson a bunch of times. So Stevenson, we've seen an increase amount of usage in the passing game as of late. I think he's a pretty good PPR target, more drafting specific than FanDuel. So uh, not too much else that I have to add about the running backs. How about for yourself? No, I think that's it. I mean, I think it's, uh, again, the decision point is Zach Moss or no Zach Moss. And I think ultimately you're just going to get whatever you get alongside that. Um, but I think we've outlined most of the guys that are strong plays. And I would agree on Ramondre as well. Like, you know, the thing with backup QBs, which I always try to say in content, is that the reason they're a backup QB is they can't get the ball outside quite as well. They can't get the ball downfield to any sort of efficiency or efficacy. So that's something then where they check down to the running backs, the tight ends, and the slot guys a little bit more. And Ramondre is basically all of those things in terms of the workload. So. Um, I think Ramondre is a more interesting play than he was earlier in the year just because uh, the Patriots offense has is like barely trying at this point is what it seems like. All right, so let's go ahead and check out the wide receivers now if you could filter by the wideouts here, Jacob. And if, if you guys ever want to check out all the tools we have at stochastic.com, link below to sign up for the football package and everything is included, the player projections, the ownership projections, the contest generators. So you can build your lineups right on our site and then you can sim them using the Sims tool here. And it's what I use to build my lineups every week. And we go ahead and look at the wide receivers here. And obviously we're assuming that Chris Olave is going to play. He's showing up in a third of lineups and he's somebody who correlates really nicely with the Derek Carr ownership we're getting. We're still going to need some confirmation that he's definitely going to be in with him being in concussion protocol. Seems like Chris Olave is trending towards playing, getting to a good amount of Tyree Kill, George Pickens, which makes sense in the context of we have a good amount of exposure to Kenny Pickett. That's where George Pickens comes into play. Couple of things that I was not expecting to see that we're getting to a good amount of. And our wide receiver exposures way more contrarian than what our running back exposures were spags. Jerry Judy showing up in a third of lineups, and then Terry McLaurin in 20% of lineups. Between those two contrarian options, what's standing out more to you? Um, I'd prefer McLaurin because of the game script and all of that. I mean, I do think that Denver Houston has a good shot to shoot out, but Cortland Sutton has just been such a better red zone target and just kind of more involved as like the, the high leverage guy in the situations where Judy, I, you know, this could be a week that he hits the ceiling. Like the price tag, I think is under 5k for him this week. So I could see why he'd be popping in. He is yeah. 4,700 for him. Um, so like I do get, and he does actually technically have a better projection from stochastic though around the industry. I think there's a little more of a favoring of Cortland Sutton. Um, so I get why Judy's coming in. I just am not the most excited about Judy. Um, McLaurin, I think, has been close to a, a big game, and it, it has always felt like Hal should be a really good matchup for McLaurin because Hal just recklessly throws deep shots. I saw a Twitter meme today saying that like I was a scientist holding up a, a tube saying, we finally found the white Jameis Winston, and it's like, that's <laughs> Sam Howell for you. Um, like I think that's what he's been, and it would, you'd think that benefits Terry McLaurin has been the steep shot guy, but it hasn't happened yet. Against Miami, again, same thing with Seattle, same thing we talked about before with some of these other teams. You have to put up points. like You have to get points going early. So if you're going to take your shots at McLaurin, this is the week, whereas for Judy, I just don't think he's as good as Sutton this year. And uh, we've got a super chat here from our guy Sammy. Sammy Telesco is saying, I love you, motherfucker. Sammy, we love you too. And then we've got some uh, other people in the chat 
also bringing up some uh, some other information here. It was uh, actually just another comment from Sam. He was saying, let's fucking go. And uh, Kohita, he gave us uh, the thumbs up for Ramondre. And uh, GC Samurai also adding that Zappy is good news for Ramondre. Tend to agree with you. Spags and I were both saying that before as well. Is that when you get these shitty quarterbacks, what's the easiest thing for them to do when they have to throw the football is just dump the ball off to Ramondre Stevenson, who's a, cap- who's a capable pass catching back. And then a question here from copy paste dates who said he already entered the tournaments he wants to do. He has $20 left to play. Is it worth it to throw it into the Millie maker? And then he said, by the way, thanks for the Sims tools that he's had two months in a row. And it has uh, helped him out quite a bit. So if you're playing, you know, you've already entered the contest you want to play for the week and you got $20 left. I don't know. Are you only playing one lineup copy paste dates or are you playing a handful of lineups? Because the way that I recommend people to allocate their bankroll I would rather you play 20 lineups in a $1 contest than one $20 lineup. To me, the way that it makes most sense to build your bankroll, and I get that people like to throw it in the Millie Maker and you you take a shot to win the big prize. And I'm not going to tell you it's impossible, but it's certainly unlikely. And the, the most reliable way to build your bankroll is play as many lineups as you can in the lowest stakes as possible and build up from there. Is, is that usually your mentality as well, Spags? Yeah, that was something, you know, Osmo Alex Baker has, I think, beaten into my head in the beginning parts of the day. Just talking about it on stream. Not that he was like yelling at me like, hey, stop playing a Millie Maker. Uh, he was too terrified about me winning it. But I think it's up to your personal preference. Like, I agree if you're doing it the smart way, you want to max out the lowest dollar tournaments you can. Like, you could even max out the quarter, max out the dime. Like, you could do a bunch of different ways of doing that. Just give yourself a lot of lineups and a shot to win that first place. But if you're playing for fun and you're like, I could lose this $20 and don't care. Um, I would say doing, you know, putting in the Millie Maker is fine, but like you're, if you're putting just one lineup in, you better be getting really contrarian somehow. Like, don't build some chalky bullshit. Like, get off the beaten path. Like, you still use projections, still use range of outcomes like the Sims provide you. Uh, but it's a personal choice thing. Like, the smart thing to do is definitely what Greg says: just max out the one dollar, or max out a bunch of turnies and maybe a single entry and something like that. Some other uh, follow up here. This is from uh, Copy Paste States as well, where he said that he plays single entry, maxes the three dollars, so the twenty max, max the one dollar. Yeah, man, I think you should be allocating more of that $20 into some of the other 20 max stuff. Like even the quarter arcade, the dime time, like those really low dollar tournaments, they're so much softer than any other contests. And you get to a point where you play DFS a whole bunch and those contests don't even become available to you anymore. If it's something you stick with and you end up playing DFS for a really long time, and then you're going to look back and be like, oh man, I wish I still had access to those low dollar contests. So instead of playing one lineup in the $20 Millie Maker, especially now where as the prize pool later on in the year gets a little bit smaller, but the prize to first doesn't, you really get into a contest where it's like, it's so top heavy that it's really, really difficult to reliably churn an ROI in it. So I do think you should be allocating more of that $20 into just playing some of the 20 max, really low dollar stuff. And I think that's going to be the best way for you to build your bankroll there. We've got another super chat from Sammy Telesco and he's saying, oh, Russ Wilson, Kenny smash. I know that's what Eric and his puppet have been asking me for a while too. They want they want all of the Russell, but that's really because I think that Russell Wilson, you could see how he could be mistaken for an exotic type of person. <laughs> Russell Wilson, I mean, there's a lot of you know Broncos country. Let's ride. Uh, Russell Wilson is he somebody who can he smash this weekend? I don't like Russ, but he's been a little bit better all year than I think he gets credit for. And he's running about five times a game. Um, not throwing it deep that much, just three deep shots per game. But like 
68% catchable ball rate, which is towards the higher end of the league. He's doing what he's supposed to do, and I do think this in-game environment against Houston should be pretty good. Again, they're not in Denver, so I just don't think they're going to have the same kind of combination of factors plus luck boxing picks in this one. But again, we'll find out if they, they have the magic touch, the magnets in their hands once again. Uh, but for Wilson, I'm not excited to play him personally. I'd rather play Shad or rather play some other guys. I'd honestly rather play Pickett. But that's a little bit of personal bias, I think, coming in because Russ has been fairly good this year. And Denver, not the most fun team to watch. Again, I've watched too much of them. It's a lot of like check down bullshit that's not the most exciting. But against Houston, like you have to put up points. So I think he's a fine play, even if he's not my play. All right. So let's go back and look at some of the wide receivers we're getting to. And Tyree Kill, we talked about him at the top and the upside of the Miami Dolphins stack. So he is our overall most rostered wide receiver showing up in 36% of lineups. I, I'd never have an issue. If, if the Sims are telling me to play a bunch of Tyree Kill or play a bunch of Christian McCaffrey, I'm not going to disagree. I, if, if it's telling me to play these studs, I'm cool with it. And with the uh, with the flexibility we have with Salah, with Zach Moss being a standout play this week, it's not as hard to pay up for these other studs at running back and at wide receiver because we got this one spot for a guy who is projected like a stud this weekend in Zach Moss. He's one of the highest projections of any player on the entire slate, and he's so cheap, $4,600 on DK, 56 on FanDuel, that it is easier to get to guys like Tyree Kill and like Christian McCaffrey. But if we scroll down a little bit, Let's look at some of the other contrarian wide receivers that are popping up. Some of Deontay Johnson, which makes sense because we're getting a bunch of Kenny Pickett. Brandon Ayuk, he's going to correlate in some of the Brock Purdy lineups that we had. And one of our top overall projected lineups did have him in. Uh, a little surprised to see uh, jo uh, Jason Brownlee, who started for the Jets last week. Uh, I thought was probably one of the best showdown plays we've had of the entire year. Brownlee was like 2 or 3% owned in that Black Friday game against the Dolphins, even though he was starting at the min price for the showdown contest. Uh, I'm seeing him show up in some lineups here. Are there any real off-the-board wide receiver plays you like? Because I actually could see myself getting to some lineups with Brownlee. I'm a little surprised to see Brownlee and not A.T. Perry. I, I just I might have a little bit of, again, uh, heading into the season thing with A.T. Perry, where I thought he stood out in a class where there weren't a lot of great outside receivers. He was a guy who was a pretty good outside receiver at Wake Forest. And then we've kind of seen flashes of that so far, where the big jump ball from Jameis Winston a couple weeks ago would be the big one that stands out. But at 3,300, I think he's kind of interesting. Um, Rondale Moore, I would say, at 3,400. Uh, there's AC Perry. Uh, Rondale Moore could also be a little bit interesting in the spot where there's going to be a lot of blitzing by Pittsburgh, and you could see some checkdowns coming a Rondale Moore's way, um, especially if Trey McBride can't somehow go. I, I don't know how he wouldn't after they cut Zach Ertz. McBride has been not practicing this week as well. Um, but I think the cheap guys are like, you can actually make some interesting lineups with just cheap guys this week. And I think that AT Perry would be one of them. Mims would be another that could potentially gain. Uh, Judy, I think, technically is questionable right now. So if Judy goes out, maybe Mims gets more routes. Uh, but I'm curious to see some of these cheap guys heading into the weekend because I think that's another way to get unique, but also to save you more money to actually play a Tyreek, to play a McCaffrey, uh, to play Keenan Allen if he goes. And I'll do one quick look over at the tight ends, which is uh, really where Eric finds the majority of his exotic plays is at the tight end position. So we'll see which guys are showing up here. And uh, Terry McBride, who a couple of days ago, there was Terry McBride, our old pal. Yeah, exactly. There was uh, T McBee in the said, house, played great I, tight end. I actually, right? said, actually, I said Terry McBride, Trey McBride, who a couple of days ago, there was some real question marks about whether he was going to play or not. Because it, it was he he missed practice, and there was a report the next day that he missed practice, but then it turned out it was a false report. He was actually at practice. Oh, was so that what it was? Okay. I don't have any real. I mean, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm guaranteeing he's going to play, but as far as Trey, Terry McBride, I don't think plays for the for the Cardinals. I know I know their offense hasn't been all that great. But I don't think they're that desperate. <laughs> Trey McBride, I think, should be good to go. And 
I'm kind of surprised he's only projected for 11% ownership because this isn't the best tight end slate that we've ever seen. So we're getting to a bunch of McBride, then Logan Thomas. Then it's just like a hodgepodge, a bunch of other guys that show up in a handful of lineups. Do you have an issue building around Trey McBride, especially in consider the 11% ownership on him? No, when you see Durham Smythe at number three, I think uh, I would rather have Trey McBride or Terry McBride are relatively <laughs> to both. Uh, but I think, yeah, like Trey McBride has been solid and then no Zach Ertz coming back in is certainly a positive for him. Um, and it's really like a bad tight end week. The only one that really stands out as like having an appreciable ceiling is George Kittle. We're seeing on the Sims having less than 1% ownership or 1% exposure right now. Um, Kittle's like the one elite-ish tight end here. Dalton Schultz, I would say, is number two. I'm surprised to see Njoku so low because I thought he would be one of the chalk plays based on the uh, stochastic data that I've seen so far. But yeah, it's like, I think it's, I think tight end is like defense this week where it's just whoever you got that works with everything else you're cramming in. I think you just take them. Yeah, it's it's been a position that's tough to talk about this year because like, oh, there's a Travis Kelsey slate. We want to play Travis Kelsey or where some of the McBride slates where McBride was like way too cheap when Zach Ertz first got hurt. And it was like mm -hmm. apparent that McBride was going to elevate to be one of the better fantasy tight ends. So, yeah, we've only got two uh, two tight ends that are showing up in north of 10 percent of lineups. And the rest of the guys, just players who, who do they correlate with the quarterbacks? Are they run backs and other stacks? And that's kind of it at the position. But guys, this brings us to the end here. If you guys haven't done it yet, do us a big favor. Like the video. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Shout out to Vivid Picks for sponsoring the show. We got the link below to sign up there as well as the football patch we have at stochastic.com. Link for that below if you want access to the Sims tool, build lineups for FanDuel, for DraftKings, for Owner's Box, and for all the different showdown and alternate slate contests, you know, like the afternoon, stuff like that, all included in it. So guys, thank you very much for watching. Good luck this weekend. We'll see you back here next week.